Hello, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of uh, posts on the From Poverty to Power blog. Feels like every week's a big week at the moment, um, but this one bigger than most. Uh, got a lot to get through, so let's get started. The week started off in pretty traditional format with a links I liked um, collection of the best things on social media. The one that struck me was a, a, a graph from The Economist, a bar chart on, do you believe that a foreign power or other force is deliberately spreading coronavirus? And this is one of those things where you suddenly realise that you're in a, a bubble and there's lots of people thinking some really weird and different stuff out there. So f around 50% of the public think that statement is true, that foreign powers or other forces are deliberately spreading coronavirus in Bulgaria, Ecuador, Palestine and the Netherlands. So that was a bit of an eye opener. Um, and I just, I just think, you know, we're in such a rationalist kind of um, bubble. And a lot of the time when we talk about these things, this is why we suddenly get overtaken by something like Brexit. Um, and we should be aware of what's actually being discussed around there, uh, outside our bubbles. The other piece was uh, an interesting bit of uh, big data um, uh uh, f from Google, um, Google searches predict COVID case volumes up to 14 days ahead of their occurrence. And among the most predictive are searches for anosmia, the loss of a smell. Um, so the loss of smell is now seen as a very clear indication of having COVID. So if you just look at when people search, what does it mean when I lose my sense of smell? You've got a very good sense of when the volume of COVID cases are building up. I really like that kind of data trawl. Um, exercise and it has to be a bit imaginative comes in from a slightly different angle and can give you a really useful uh, tool the week then picked up speed with does development have a problem with racism which as a couple of commenters pointed out is really a rhetorical question the answer is clearly yes uh, q uh, no, q the uh, questions to which the answer is yes um, is the acronym people use. Um, <clears throat> this was an interview by my colleague Maria Faciolinse with Robtel Nirjai Pile, um, a Liberian academic activist and author based at the University of Oxford. Robtel had given the uh, keynote at last year's Development Studies Association conference, um, and it was entitled Decentering the White Gaze of Development. And so as a Liberian academic who's also in uh, at Oxford, she can see what's going on and she wanted to talk about decolonization. Um, I think my favorite quote, I mean, it's a, it's a podcast and a transcript. I, I recommend you listen to the podcast or read the transcript. They're both great. My favorite quote was, <clears throat> decolonization is not a new phenomenon, but with the 21st century, the, the 21st century version of this has become very apolitical. It stays in academia and it's about changing the curriculum without linking it to the everyday dilemmas that people in the global south face. Fighting autocracy, homophobia, ecolog ecological damage, racism, patriarchy. Those are the real issues that people face. And I think that decolonization as an academic pursuit is one that misses out on those linkages. So as someone who's busily engaged in doing a um, diversity analysis of the course reading list at LSE, I felt that quite sort of personally, that um, what will this actually lead to in terms of a change of behaviours and, and an engagement, a re-engagement with real political struggle. So good, great quote from, from Rob Tell, near Jai Pele there. Um, <clears throat> and then while people were reading Rob Tell's piece, uh, the Prime Minister of the UK, Boris Johnson, announced 
something that everybody has been fearing but we had thought had gone away, which is a merger between DFID, the Department for International Development, and the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, the UK's Foreign Ministry. Now, this has been rumbling on for years. Johnson said before he became Prime Minister that he thought it was a good idea. Um, and uh, they announced it on Tuesday. And it was very much a sort of, you can get away with anything during COVID. Um, so you just announce all this stuff. The reason why I'm saying that is because everybody who actually has looked at the British aid system and the role of DFID has said that is a bad idea. The DFID has you know, a very good reputation. We criticise it a lot. Uh, 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 Oxfam and within academia has all sorts of problems. But the countries which have done this, and there are many of them, so Netherlands, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, have found the quality of aid has decreased. But I'm not sure that this is really a quality of aid issue. So what this is, is that the British aid budget is enshrined in law at 0.7% of gross national income. So it's very hard to cut without a big political fight. So what's been happening already in the last few years is the other government departments have been getting their fingers in the sweetie jar and grabbing an increasing slice of aid. And this will increase that. And very much the tone of Boris Johnson's statement in Parliament was this is to make the aid budget much more aligned with British foreign policy. And he compared, why don't we, why do we spend the same amount of money in Zambia as we do in Ukraine? Well, actually, because there's a lot more poor people in Zambia. So by raising that issue, it suggests that poverty reduction is no longer going to be at the centre of the British uh, aid budget, which is really, really worrying. Um, as a researcher and a, an academic, I'm worried about what this means for the DFID research budget. DFID has a large and incredibly uh, impressive research portfolio. It uh, funds a lot of really interesting work on uh, political economy of development, of you know, the number of projects I'm involved with. I just worry that um, a move which is based on ignoring evidence and uh, uh, is not likely to produce a department which is deeply wedded to research and evidence. So I think there's a real some real doubts about that. Um, I tried to find some silver linings. One is that you know one of the, one of the problems with DFID is that it's dominated by a kind of a mindset of medics and economists, orthodox economists, where if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. And there's a sort of tendency towards bean counting, measuring, proving value for money. And that drags you towards the things that are easier to measure. So bed nets, vaccinations, and away from the things which are harder to measure, like empowerment, social change, um, the things which I'm actually interested in. So maybe the you know bringing the DFID and the Foreign Office together will provide, will make it easier to do thinking and working politically. You know, actually taking politics and power into account. I hope that's true. But when I've said that to other um, to the people from these other countries that have had these mergers, they say, no, sorry, it's just all folded in to a fairly crass pursuit of national advantage. And um, our, aid, our aid work is the worst for that. So we'll see. We'll see how the merger takes place. There's lots of things not clear about it. We'll see who benefits. We'll see what the look of the new Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office is. Uh, the FCDO, um, and I'll come back to you, I'm sure, in due course and sh say how it's shaping up. The next uh, post was an interview with Danny Shriskandaraja, my big boss at Oxfam. Um, and Danny is in the eye of the storm at the moment because we're in the middle of a big transformation of Oxfam, a transformation born, I have to say, of economic crisis in, to some extent. Um, so I was, I was 
got Danny to talk me through what's going on um, at uh, Oxfam in terms of what cuts, why is Oxfam withdrawing from 18 countries, which kind of countries is it doing, uh, is it leaving, but also what's the vision for, the, for this transformation? Because it's not just about cuts, it's about trying to make Oxfam a different organisation, trying to respond to some of the many criticisms of international NGOs um, uh, and... Um, uh, come up with a new a, a new generation of international NGO. And I'll just uh, quote Danny's finale, which I really thought was quite stirring. So, <clears throat> Oxfam was founded long before aid was defined as a term. We were founded on the basis of solidarity, in this case to fight famine in Greece in 1942. Not just by delivering life-saving assistance, but by speaking truth to power, lobbying the British government to change its policy on the blockade of Nazi-held Europe. That approach, I think, is timeless. We've got to work within the aid system to make sure that we shift power and resources as best we can. But also, I hope that we are here long after aid is no longer needed, because there's another need, which is to have strong, vibrant, internationalist civil society formations, global networks that bring people together, that build from below and beyond borders on what look increasingly like universal struggles against poverty, inequality, and injustice. And I thought that was a really great vision for where Oxfam's trying to get to, and we'll see whether it succeeds. And I am aware that there's a slight dissonance in the posts this week because, the, like the first um, couple of the first post by um, Rob Tal Nirjai Paley was all about um, racism and aid, racism and academia, and then immediately Diffid was. Um, uh, dismantled or uh, the announcement was made that it was going to be dismantled, we all rally to the defence of aid. So I think, you know, you can criticise aid and you can defend DFID. It is possible to think these two things at the same time. I don't think we need to get forced into are you for aid entirely or against aid entirely. Those kind of binaries are really rather stupid. Um, so I think it's perfectly fair to have this kind of variety of posts up this week. Final post of the week um, how are civil society organisations adapting in the pandemic? Guest post by Julian Landry of Cody and Anne-Marie Smith, who leads the government of Jamaica's public sector learning framework project. Um, and they had been on a Zoom call uh, a couple of months ago now with a dozen graduates of the Cody International Institute, which is this really inter interesting Canadian-based outfit, which does leadership training for, for civil society organisations, grassroots organisations around the world, and has been doing it for, I think, 70 years or a very long time anyway. Um, and so they have this fantastic network out there of people who've now become leaders of various CSOs. And they, they dialed in with a few of those and picked their brains on how CSOs are adapting. And they found various areas. There's a lot of work around information, transparency and trust. Um, there's a lot of work around um, uh, shifting networks. So, so CSOs are, moving, are, are changing networks, finding new partners. And there's an example from um, Ethiopia. Even previously ineffective relationships are now improving. In Ethiopia, government leadership, faith-based organisations and community actors are working hand in hand, unlike previous times. So there's a chance here to, to build trust and relationships which will stand CSOs in good stead going forwards. Um, a very positive story about technology that, 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 that being forced to work remotely, as many CSOs have, um, has actually helped them expand the channels and, and, and 
got them to grips with new technology. In my case, I've had to finally learn to use Zoom properly. Um, but of course, there are downsides in terms of a digital digital divide. People who are not on uh, don't have access to broadband. Uh, worries about surveillance and privacy, all sorts of other things. But they think that you know, on balance, there's some real possibilities for pursuing accountability and engagement online. And then the uh, final point, which I've made repeatedly on the blog, the virus is not gender blind and governance around this issue can't be either. When governments fail to take this into account, CSOs in many cases are stepping up and saying, OK, look, there has been a massive increase in gender based violence. Women are not getting the benefits of government bailout programs. Women have been most affected by some of the uh, economic impacts. You've got to have a gendered response. So on that note, I will say uh, farewell and have a great weekend.